Blog Talk Radio. relationship everything you want it to be? Are you living a fulfilled, passionate life empowered with choices that ignite you to the next level? Good love makes your whole life better. So join America's good love doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade, on a journey to your healthiest life yet. A regular on Dr. Oz and Dr. Drew, she's appeared on Oprah, Good Morning America, and is featured in countless publications from USA Today to Essence Magazine. The creator of life-changing Get Unstuck Now, Love, Money, and Save a Seminars, she's counseled millions, but today she's here just for you with the hottest topics, guests, and trends. This is Good Love with Dr. Brenda Wade. Hi there, everyone. I'm here with you, your love doctor, the good love doctor, and I'm thrilled to have yet another episode of Good Love Radio with Dr. Brenda Wade. And today's topic is going to challenge you. So get out your pens, your paper, your iPad or notebook or whatever it is you take notes in because you are going to learn so much. I've got a couple questions for you. Is an eight-year-old running your love life? Mm. What does emotional maturity look like in a love relationship? How does it feel? What does it mean to be an adult in a relationship? And what are some steps you can take right now to access your best love life and get to some balance in your love life and maybe something even better than balance? Our guest today is David Rico who's written a book called How to Be an Adult in Relationships. I cannot wait to get started with the conversation with David. He's a therapist, workshop leader, and a writer who works in Santa Barbara and right here in San Francisco, California. His work integrates psychology and spirituality. His books and workshops include the groundbreaking How to Be an Adult in Relationships. Now, as always here on Good Love Radio, we are focused on why good love is essential to your greatness. What is it in you that needs to be cultivated? That's why we have a mantra here for our show. Let me remind you, do it with me. Everybody say this, I am worthy. Yes, it's your turn. I am worthy and I am deserving. I am deserving and I love me unconditionally. I love me unconditionally. I am worthy. I am deserving. I love me unconditionally. 
Now that sounds easy, but you know it's a challenge. Our guest today is going to help you identify negative love patterns that might be blocking you from good love. How you can break free of the chains of what happened back then so you're free to experience what is happening right now. Maybe that has something to do with emotional maturity. Now, I'm going to quote David Rico. He says, most people think love is just a feeling. But love is not so much a feeling as a way of being present. Woo! All right, he's drawing on some Buddhist concepts of mindfulness. David Rico is our guest today, and welcome, David Rico. Thank you, Dr. Wade. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I'm very excited about this topic because most people get into relationships with the idea that somehow love or their partner or the relationship is going to carry them, and they just are going to cruise along. So talk to us about your journey. I know you've been working on mindfulness path. Tell us how you got there, and then we'll get into what that has to do with love. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I was married for about 15 years, and I don't think during that time I really understood what love is about. It took me... Um, the maybe between five and ten years after the divorce, during which time I became more interested in Buddhism. And I discovered both the mindfulness and loving-kindness practices, and those helped me see a lot better what love was really about. <clears throat> and as you pointed out in the quotation, it's, it's about a real presence with one another, and I came to realize that this real presence is shown by what I call the five A's. Now, before you go there, hold on, because okay. I want people to be ready to write those five A's down. One of the things that you're saying is you were married for 15 years, and it wasn't until after the divorce you had kind of an awakening. So what happened on your way to the marriage, what happened in the marriage, what was it that you didn't know before you got there? First, I didn't know that I would be bringing so much of the leftover on uh, the leftover emotional business of my childhood into the relationship. That I'd be putting <clears throat> my mother's face on my wife that I would be even trying to get back at my mother through my wife, and that I hadn't quite understood that one has to somehow come to terms with and resolve some of what's left over from childhood. In my case, it was a childhood that had a, a physical abuse in it, a childhood that had a lot of emotional deprivation, and this left a gaping hole inside me, and I expected that the, quote, woman of my dreams, unquote, would take care of that for me, would fill that for me. Of course, she had her own gaping hole from her own childhood, and so she was expecting the same of me. So when two expectations clash, 
you get two disappointments. And that disappointment became a kind of anger. And so I noticed that I would engage in a lot of retaliation for uh, against her for things she did that were bothersome to me. And only later did I realize that, you know, that Italian way of doing things, which I inherited from my past, doesn't go with love. That love means letting go of that street style and going to this true presence to someone without so much of the past getting in the way. So the second thing I learned besides the practices of mindfulness and loving kindness, and this was not from Buddhism but from psychology, was that you have to address, process, and resolve the past by grieving for the needs that were not fulfilled. So for that little boy who grew up with a mother who couldn't meet his needs and worse still, not only didn't meet that little boy's needs, but actually punish that little boy, you know, physical abuse. And I know something about that from my own childhood. There is this lingering sense, not only is there a hole, but a sense that I am not worthy. I don't deserve it. Now, am I just projecting, or does that ring true for you? No, that that fits very well. Good. So, And, of course, I don't blame my mother at this point. I, I realize that... You know, she had a lot of her own burdens and her own... Yeah, but it took God knows to what. get there, right? Yeah. But I want to say that really quickly. You notice how I jumped in there. That was for all of our listeners who have the idea that you just forgive. And I know you've heard this, David, the people who mm-hmm. say, oh, I don't blame my parents. I just forgive them for what they did. I understand. But if you haven't done that process work that, you just heard about a minute ago, we have missed the boat because there's no such thing as flipping a switch and getting instant forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. It takes real process. Now, when you were growing up, did you have a fantasy about love, David, about uh, what it would be like when you found that loving woman and what she would be like? I don't think I thought that way. I think I um, I loved being cherished and made a fuss over by my grandmother and my aunts. And I think I, from that, came up with the expectation that other women or anyone in my life would make the same fuss over me and give me all the leeway that they gave me. My, my Well, that's interesting. Quite <clears throat> a juxtaposition, your aunts and your grandmother versus your mother. Oh, yes. That was a big... I mean, I had the, the mother on one side and, and then her aunts and her mother all on the other side. And they were wonderful to me and, you know, held me, kissed me, whatever. And mother was, you know, more shall we say, difficult to deal with. Yeah. But when you said about, you know, processing, for me that meant grieving the past 
and letting go of it. And the grief took the form of being sad, letting myself finally in adult life be sad about all that I missed out on in childhood and all but that happened. But it took you get going through a divorce before you were able to get to that. Yes, it took right? me. I had a, yeah, when you're in the midst of the drama in the relationship, it's hard to do this work. I've also noticed this in working with couples as a therapist. Mm-hmm. Because you, you're, you're so caught up in the, the emotional uproar that keeps happening. You don't get a chance to do this type of work. Anyway, it's, it's the grief work was the sadness about what I missed, the yeah, anger. May I add something there? This is important yeah. from my perspective. It is also possible, I've discovered, you know, after many years of working with couples, that you can do some of the work in the relationship. Not everybody can. Sometimes there's just too much drama. You can't get to it. But sometimes that drama is the wake-up call. And when I have couples that come in in crisis to a seminar or to uh, private work, sometimes that is the moment when everything crystallizes and we can just get right in there. The fire is so hot that we can get right in and get to those deep issues. So there are two ways, everybody. You might have to get out of the relationship to get the work done. On the other hand, if you are listening right now and your relationship is in deep doo-doo, it is possible that you can dig your way out of that and get to new ground. And it, it certainly is possible to turn around. A marriage research shows that 50% of marriages of those people who hit a serious snag can be saved and be better than ever if you do the work. So I just have to put that plug in. There are two ways to No, work. I'm glad you did. And um, the work would be would include this grief work, <clears throat> which is a combination of <clears throat> sadness about whatever was missing in the past, anger at the people who were responsible for what was missing, and fear that you'll never find a replacement that gives you the these five A's that I believe we're all looking for. Their attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection, and allowing. And these are the needs that we had in early life, which we carry over into adult life and look for in our intimate relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is very, very important. Now, just before we plunge fully into the A's, because I want you to really explain those for everybody, and they overlap a lot with five A's that I came up with, too, based on the Love Lab work that uh, was done up at UW. The thing that is so important, I want everyone to be on the journey with you, David. You went down two paths from what you've said thus far. You developed not only the capacity to grieve, to be with the sadness, to be with the fear. And that is a painful process, which is why most people never get there. It takes courage to do that. (laughs) Yes. So for those who are afraid to step into that hot water for fear, they'll be burned up or something. What can you say about how you found the courage to stay with 
the pain, stay with the sadness, given you know we live in an anti-feeling culture. The heck with feelings. I'm going to shop. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to smoke marijuana. I'm going to do anything, have sex, anything other than feel my feelings. I would say it was based on three things. The first was I had to have my great big fat ego get deflated when my wife took off with someone else. I had to feel that comeuppance and realize, oh, I don't have all the control I thought I had. That reduced my ego, ultimately, and that was the first way in which I was open to finally to doing some of my own work. Mm-hmm. Secondly, of course, was going to therapy and you know try and you know trying to work these things out. And third, and very important, uh, it's actually a topic of my next book, which is called The Power of Grace. Mm, beautiful. I believe I it was title. a grace. I believe it was like a special gift from the universe, higher power, however you want to put it, that uh, just made something click and allowed me finally to let go of my resentments long enough to look at, of, of others to look at my own work. So those are the three ways that I made the transition. And Buddhism, of course, helped me with that. Deep, David. Deep, deep, deep. I love what you just said about that grace. Mm. Helping you to let go of resentment. And everybody knows resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other person's going to die, but who's drinking the poison? And resentment keeps the big old fat ego in place, doesn't it? Yes, very much so. Because then I'm justified because you did it and it's your fault and I don't have to look at my own stuff. So wow, I'm sorry for the pain, but I'm also happy for you that you used the pain to facilitate this deep, important work that you've done. Yeah, it it meant letting go of the sense of entitlement. See, that's the opposite of being worthy. When you feel truly worthy, you don't feel entitled. You simply feel present in the world as someone who could face up with equanimity to any of what life throws your way. Sometimes it will be fair to you, sometimes unfair. You gave me truth bumps. From the top of my head to the tips of my toes, I I call them truth bumps. Entitlement is the opposite of feeling worthy. That rocks my world. Thank you very much for that. I will be quoting you from here on out. Well, thank you. That is how I see it. That is deep. Deep, deep, deep. Entitlement, uh, underneath entitlement, is a terrible sense of shame and unworthiness. Mm -hmm. You know, so instead you, it's like whistling in the cemetery. You act as if you had a lot more going for you than you believe you do. But anyway, you you wanted to ask about the five A's? Yes, yes, but what you just said, don't leave it so quickly because that's profound. Say some more about hiding that sense of shame. I think that's what is behind this 
this ego that we build up, what's called the big ego, the part of us that arrogantly walks around with a chip on our shoulders and expects that everybody else will treat us with great with the honor that we deserve and it's all the it's the reason we're overdoing it is because we're trying to make up for the deep sense of shame and unworthiness that's inside us but instead of having instead of having the the courage shall we say to look at that and to say oh look at how i feel and what can i do now to work with this so that i can heal it where do i need to bring this in in the world of myself and others so that it releases and and starts to move in a healing direction and that healing direction would be of course the self-esteem the worthiness you know what you mentioned at the beginning with the affirmations yes yes but most of us walk around with um with that sense that um we're pulling we're putting something over on people when they seem to like us you know because we think oh if you really knew me you wouldn't really like me yep wow david such a refreshing perspective on love and relationships because you're going right to the core how i feel about myself yeah is truly the basis for how we show up in a relationship and we know the a's that we're going to get to in just a minute are part of the cure but for people who are wondering you know is it me what are the signs that it's you in the relationship signs that it's you are very simple you're continually blaming the other person <laughs> for everything that's going on <laughs> and you're always giving yourself permission to retaliate and and to keep everything in a big dramatic pitch by doing things that are you know that 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 cause more of an operatic reaction mm-hmm. <laughs> these are all ways of making sure that we don't do the work on ourselves mm. wow yeah I because totally most of us have a great resi- most of us have a resistance to self-repair we want to see everybody else get repaired we even will control them to repair to do the repairs ourselves the ones we think they need mm-hmm which are ultimately self-satisfying as opposed or self-centered rather than other-centered. Mm-hmm. But it's a rare person who believes really that that there is repair of ourselves that needs to happen and that we're very willing to roll up our sleeves and do it. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard because self-repair means I've got to look at the parts of me that are flawed. I have to accept that I have the pain, the sadness, the loneliness, the longing, the hurt, all the things that we spoke of earlier that you had to face coming out of an abusive childhood. Yes. And And all of that list... That's tough, everybody. That's very tough stuff. 
that list you just gave, I think a sign of health would be when every one of those is about myself mm-hmm. rather than, oh, look at all they took away from me. Oh, look at how they messed me up. Oh, look how they're messing me up right now. It's when it all turns to become owned by you and you finally say, oh, this is, this is pointing to my work on myself. All these longings and fears and so forth. All of this is pointing to my work on myself. It's not pointing to how inadequate the people around me are. Right. And I want to say something here. This, so far, our discussion is aimed toward those who may be in relationships. But I want to say for single people, because I work with a lot of singles who are kind of intractably looking for love, just can't find it, can't find find the right one, no matter what I do, they're all a bunch of bozos. If that's your perspective, all of this is true. Because you can't be chronically single unless you've got what I call shark repellent, and it comes from exactly, David, what you are describing right now. Hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You know, the, the blaming those out there. My favorite are uh, people looking for partners who say, there just aren't any good women, or there just aren't any good men. Or just, yes, you know, we've heard that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So now tell us about your five A's. Okay. Um, and how you got to them. Yeah, how you got there, because the Buddhist path is one that has such deep compassion and, and kindness in it. And how much did that play a part? And how did you get to the Buddhist path? Well, I'll start with the five A's, and then I can go on to the other part. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I asked myself, what are the most basic needs that... I must have had in early life and that it seems everyone has and I started to list them and the first one that came to me was we certainly come into the world with a need for attention attention means that someone notices what we're feeling and what we're needing and welcomes this information Secondly, that a parent, this is parent to our child now, would accept us as we are rather than try to make us into what they believe we should be. Third, that they would hold us appreciatively with a great sense of, of cherishing our value. That's the appreciation. And then fourth, that they would hold us affectionately non-sexually but with a lot of physical touch in a in a, a warm comforting soothing way and finally that that in addition to all of those four which are ways they come toward us that they would do one final thing which is let us go away from them that's the allowing when they allowed us to crawl away instead of be carried, to go to that first day of school instead of stay home. And, and we kept 
going. <clears throat> That's what we're built for, a journey. So we have to be with people who allow us to go. So that came to these five words, attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection, and allowing, hence five A's. Then I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. These are the very same needs that we go into an adult relationship with. We're looking for a partner who will pay attention to us rather than only talk about himself, who will accept us as we are rather than control us, who will appreciate us rather than resent us or put us down. In other words, see our, our worthiness, see our value, who will show us affection now in sexual ways when that's appropriate, and who will at the same time allow us to make the choices that reflect our own deepest needs and wishes rather than trying to foist their, his or her deepest needs and wishes onto us. And I thought, okay, that is the equivalent of really being present lovingly, and that will be my definition of love. And so it moved wow. in my mind from, you know, what feels good and, you know, what the popular songs from the 40s and 50s describe as love with the, you know, pitter-patter stuff. All that's okay. But if you want to know if it's real, you ask yourself, does it give me those five things? Now, when we give those five things to each other reciprocally at the same time, that's called intimacy. I give you the five A's, you give them to me, that's intimacy. Yeah, that makes total sense because here is a recipe for connection. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Wow, this is beautiful. Really beautiful because certainly on the things that are the deepest longings. And as I'm looking at the five A's, the thing that flashes up for me, David, is that part of the healing is we give this to ourselves. Yes, that's the other part, that when we work on ourselves, it's the equivalent of, oh, I'm finally paying attention to myself. I'm accepting myself just as I am rather than a sugar-coated view or, an, or a deprecatory negative view. I'm holding myself as having value and worthiness. That's the appreciation. Uh, this is an affectionate way of being with myself, and I'm finally allowing myself to to make the changes that I need to make. So we give these to ourselves, and we ask for them from others. But of course, you can only ask for them. You can't expect or demand them. Right, exactly. And the easiest way to get somebody to give you what you want, everybody, you know the answer to that, mm-hmm. is give them what yeah. they need. Yeah, and give yourself what you need. And give yourself, always, always, always. You know, this is one of the, the big caveats in relationships, isn't it? The mm-hmm. self-deprivation most people come to the relationship with. Yeah, And by the way, I I did make one other distinction, which I think is helpful. You see, in infancy, you need those five A's 100% from your parents or whoever the caregivers were. Mm -hmm. But by the time you get to adulthood, you know how to give these to yourself. You know how to get them from friends, 
from career, from spirituality, from higher power, from nature, from all other kinds of sources. So you only are supposed to get about 25% from any partner. Oh, 25%. I've never heard yeah. that before. It lowers most way down. Most people come to love looking for 100%. Yeah, see, infant in the cradle can't get needs met anywhere but from the caretakers. Mm-hmm. But by the time you're an adult, you've hopefully marshaled a, a whole list of sources of these five A's, yourself being the first one. So this reduces down to adult size. You mentioned about being an adult. An adult is one who only asks for 25% of those five A's from any one person. If you're trying to get 100%, if you're trying to get 100%, you're coming from a cradle place. You're not coming from an adult place. That makes total sense. Now, talk about the spiritual part. Because many people don't think of a spiritual part in a relationship being important when, in fact, there was a study done at University of Denver. Some of our listeners have heard me talk about this. was done some years ago because I was on a book tour, and the president of the University of Denver was on a tour, too, talking about this study of hundreds, maybe even thousands of married couples where they had asked them to rate their marriage and whether it was unsatisfying, marginal, and then those who rated the marriage satisfying or better, they then said, what do these people have in common? There were eight factors. One of those eight factors that made a marriage satisfying or better was a spiritual life that they shared. And it didn't have to mean religion. One of the things they said is that spirituality can be getting up looking at the sunrise. Mm-hmm. That's a good question, Dr. Wade, and this is how I would approach it. Of course, you never come up with a full answer when it comes to spirituality because we're in the realm of mystery. We're not in the realm of simple fact. If you said how much is two and two, I can say four. It's factual, but this topic is mysterious. So the only thing I can do is approach it, and the way I approach it, first of all, is with the word more, capital M. You become spiritual when there's a dimension of more, of transcendence of the ordinary level of something. I'll give an example. That's what makes it spiritual. So, for instance, you can say love, but when love becomes unconditional and heroic, now it's spiritual. Now, how do we know? You can say knowledge, but when knowledge becomes wisdom, that's Mm -hmm. spiritual. Okay. But for those who might be going, well, what the heck does he mean by heroic, unconditional? What are the signs? What are the symptoms of unconditional and heroic love? It's loving without reserve so that you go the extra mile, hence the word more, extra mile, 
to be present for someone with those five A's even when that person isn't coming across with them for you. So it's the end of tit for tat. It's this is who I am now. I'm a person who shows love in this way. I'm not giving away my boundaries. I'm not going to live with abuse. But the kind of love that I want to make room for in myself and ask for the grace to have it happen, which is the other half of spirituality, that it comes from grace, not from effort, not from practices. It's a, it's a gift, and we open to the gift rather than make it happen. So anyway, you, <clears throat> you have the kind of love that has so much integrity and is no longer in any way based on what the other person does towards you. That's what gives it its spiritual dimension. As opposed to, well, I'll give you as much as you give me. Let's be reciprocal. Spiritual means I, I've left that style behind. And it is an heroic move because it's like what the hero does in the hero journey stories. He or she does the extra, puts himself or herself at risk so that the other person can survive or get what he or she needs. I uh, I know it sounds kind of over the top, but... Uh, this is our ultimate, in my mind, this is our ultimate calling. And I don't mean being codependent. So, you know, I have to love and love and I don't get anything in return. I don't mean that. Right, you got there right ahead of me. I was just about to ask about the difference between heroic and unconditional love and codependent love. In codependency, you're coming from a neediness you're so afraid of being alone that you'll do anything to keep the other person there. With this unconditional, strong love that comes from the Buddhist practice of loving kindness, which I can explain in a minute, you're not coming from a needy place. You're coming from full generosity and abundance that is that loves to love, that loves to give in this way. And the commitment in codependency is without reserve, but the commitment in spiritually unconditional love is completely full of reserve. So here's the distinction. My love is full but my commitment is very, very narrow. It's based entirely on whether you're going to step up to the plate and be a partner that I can really trust. So when you have this spiritual approach, you're taking care of yourself and you're saying, I'm not, for instance, if you're going to be an alcoholic and beat the children and you just refuse to get help, then I'm not going to live with you. I still love you unconditionally. I still have this spiritual 
uh, longing that you see the light, and I'll do everything I can to support that journey toward the light if you're willing to take the first step. Mm. But I won't live with you because I have reserves on the nature of my commitment, the shape that it will take. A codependent person says, I love you unconditionally and I'll stay with you no matter what you do because I just have to have your presence. That's the difference between heroic and codependent. That's a big difference. You know, I I teach a six-week class called Unchain Your Love where I have people pick out their love pattern and one of the patterns is dormant. I'll let you walk on me, wipe your feet on me, trample mm. on me, put your cleats on me, whatever it takes, and I'll just stay here and take it because I have to have your love. So for those who want the down and dirty version of codependence, David is very elegant. I'm just down and dirty. We're talking about doormat love, and that is not heroic love. No. Not Got at it. All. Got the it. way to tell that the love is healthy is the kind of commitment that you make because of it. You, don't tell, you can't tell that a love is healthy by the extent of the love or the depth of it. You, you can tell by what shape you insist your life be in and what boundaries you place around yourself to protect yourself and to establish the sense of safety and security for yourself. That's how you tell that the love is real, that the commitment is is not unconditional, only the love is. With codependency, both are unconditional. So all the doors are open, there are no boundaries, there's no protection, there's no safety and security, and yet I still will stay there. Or another way of putting it is, I keep doing more when they only find less. Yeah, Yeah. that is really a great clarifying point. Now, go back to Buddhism, because there are many spiritual paths, and Buddhism is its own particular path, and illuminate a little bit about how you came to that path and how it's made a difference in your own understanding of what it means to create healthy love. I um, discovered Buddhism and noticed that it could help me be a healthier person in the world. It's not a religion. It's uh, a way of life in which... Some say a philosophy, yeah. Yeah, in which you recognize that becoming attached is the cause of our suffering or unhappiness and that the more you can let go of your attachments while maintaining healthy relationships, you, uh, you, you find more happiness in life. That's the first thing. And then secondly, it has... Um, the practice of mindfulness, which is looking at reality and at what people do and and at your own thoughts without judgment, but with compassion. Third, it offers a practice called loving kindness uh, in which you learn to first love yourself 
then love those close to you, then love those that you have problems with, then love those that you're neutral toward, and finally love all beings with equal love, but with different levels of commitment. And uh, on the 10th anniversary, 10-year anniversary of my book, How to Be an Adult in Relationships, that you mentioned, I came out with my latest book, which is How to Be an Adult in Love. And that's when I finally explained this spiritual dimension of relationship. So that is the, actually the book, too, that I would recommend at this point. And I take okay, you so through the, the five days. the book you're recommending at this point is How it's called to Be How an to Adult be in Love. Yeah. Okay, great. We've got that, everybody. Write that down. How to Be an Adult in Love. And wow, you're raising a high bar there, David. There are a lot of people going, I'm never going to clear that bar. Oh, my God, why should I even start? No, no, I'm going to take you over the bar step by step. Okay, let's go over the bar. Yard by yard. Great, great. (laughs) And by the way, I'm only, I haven't even gotten over it myself yet, but I've got some ideas about how to do it. (laughs) Yeah, and it's, it's about not seeing that we have to achieve a goal here because of all things, Buddhism says this is a journey. It's a path. You just stay on the path. Yeah, good point. And right. by the way, let me, I have to say this because I'm thinking of uh, David Levine and Andrea Levine and how uh, David, these are both Buddhist teachers who actually worked mm-hmm. with me on one of my books. And David, David said that um, he met Andrea in one of his classes of him dying and told his teacher, oh, I've met this woman, I'm in love with her, but I can't pay her. And the teacher said, why? And he said, he said that, um, you know, if I marry her, it'll pull me off the path. Huh. Uh, and so the teacher said, what, are you kidding? Get married, it's the best spiritual path you'll ever find. It's certainly the path to letting go of illusions. Hence, quite enlightening. Because your illusions will disappear one after another. Guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah, he and that said, is enlightenment. Yes. David said, you know, you learn patience, you learn forgiveness, you learn to get over yourself and thinking you're all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So we don't have that much time left, David. This is a rich conversation. You're living up to your name, Rico. And tell us more about those who are saying, okay, I want to get my toe in the water. What would be the first step to becoming an adult, to showing maturity in a relationship? What is the first step? I think the first step is recognizing that there is such a thing as work on yourself, and that's what the self-help movement has shown us. And, you know, you've done so much to show people what that work is. And... Well, thank you for that acknowledgement. I had no choice. And as you know, coming from an abusive childhood, if you don't work on it, you just end up making your life one big, long road to being a victim. Yeah. So anyway, as you say, you're, you're stuck that way and being a victim until you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, There's a, there is a technology that I can call upon and all these self-help authors uh, have helped me 
see what the possibilities are. So I suggest that you know you start going toward adulthood when you recognize that you're not adult enough yet and you need to learn how to be an adult. And that's the direction that you're leading people in, and I hope I am. By the way, can I mention my website? Which oh, also I'm going has... to absolutely give people your website. You bet. Oh, okay. Yeah. No problem. I have it right in front of me, and I am going to be hurting everybody that direction because I know that you have a lot to share. And when you talk about people reading, you know, I have the most ridiculous library of books, and I will tell you every one of those books is like a friend to me. So I've got like a couple thousand friends who mm-hmm. all had wisdom to share. They all had something to help me grow. That along with all the spiritual teachers, all the therapists, all the research. You know, it takes, I always say, life is a team sport. And you've got mm-hmm. to have a team to really keep growing. So everybody, don't be shy about collecting books and, you know, put them on your little Kindle devices and all the other stuff that's out there now, you can take your library with you wherever you go when you need inspiration and you need to keep growing. That makes a lot of sense. So tell us more. First step is recognize you're not a full adult. Second step is I'm saying follow David's lead and and my lead if you want. Collect books that will help you. You mentioned also going to therapy, David. Now, a lot of people, as you said, are resistant to working on themselves, resistant. You had a great phrase because it was so good. I wrote it down here. You said resistant to Mm self-repair. So what do you say to those people who are going, I'm never going to a therapist. I'm not crazy. Fortunately, nowadays, people understand, more and more people understand that it's not about being crazy. It's just about making some adjustments to the factory settings <laughs> that your parents placed on you. And <laughs> factory seeing, you know, settings, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> seeing if you can adjust them so that you have happiness in life and a sense of self-worth and clarity, wisdom, so forth. And uh, I guess the most important point on this, you know, how we move toward adulthood, is that a new priority arises. It's the priority of becoming the most loving person I can be. That does not mean, as you said, being a doormat to anyone, because this is a strong kind of love. But instead of saying how, instead of putting all the accent on how can I find the person who will love me as I want to be loved, we begin with how can I love myself in the way I need to be loved, and then trust that you will look like someone who's become strong enough that the kind of partner you would then invite towards yourself, the kind of person you would become appealing to, will be someone who's strong enough because he himself or she has done the work on themselves and 
Now, you both come from that so place. Crucial. David, I have to just take out the big yellow highlighter on this one. This is probably the number one thing I hear single people go on and on and on about. Hmm. I can't find that right one, and I'm forever saying become the right one. Become yes. that loving, strong person you're talking about. Become the person who's not you know, in the drama that your parents installed. Become the person who's willing to do the work and... It literally changes the the frequency you're vibrating at, and boom, you know everything is energy. You're going to magnetize a person who's at the higher frequency, and you'll just step over the people that you used to be attracted to. And I don't want anybody to think I'm speaking from personal experience that way. <laughs> now I like what you just said, Doctor Wade. That makes a lot of sense, and that is how I see it. Also, it's that. Um, you you put the accent on being all that you can be when it comes to showing all the love you have in any way you can to everyone you meet. And then the result is um, you just notice that uh, you attract a new level of person. One who doesn't come from a needy place, but but comes from a fulfilled place. See, in, in healthy relating, we're not looking for someone to fulfill us. We're looking for someone to join in the mutual project of enrichment. It's not about fulfillment. That, that I, you know, I'm half a person, and I'm only going to be complete when I have somebody by my side. It's not like that. It's it's that I'm already complete, and and now I further enrich myself along with someone else who enriches himself or herself with me. So a true soulmate is not the person who is your other half or your mirror image. The true soulmate is the one who acknowledges your wholeness that you're already perfectly okay, that you're already whole, and who comes from that same place. So it's not two halves meeting, it's two holes meeting, W-H-O-L-E. Yeah. And that that's more what I call a soulful connection. Yeah, and again, single people, I know you're listening. You don't have to be perfect and be whole to get in a relationship. Just find somebody who's willing to do the work with you. Because having somebody do the work with you is fabulous. I'm choking on it. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah. So, David, in the last few minutes, you've given a formula. And I want to just recap that quickly and have you complete it and flush it out as you see fit. First step is recognize nobody's fully mature, so we're all going to work on ourselves, and we're going to keep working on ourselves. It's a lifetime commitment. It's like a plant saying, I don't want to grow anymore. Plants are going to keep growing. You know, that's life. We're here to grow. Mm -hmm. So the second thing you said is read. Third thing is let's get our butts in therapy. Let's take classes. Let's do the things that are going to help us learn and grow and become more I like how you said it, the all you can be. The Army would like that, I think. 
<laughs> and then what do we do from there? And the final thing, of course, is to appreciate the graces that are always coming to us to invite us into those that point us in the direction of the kingdom within instead of the kingdom is out there somewhere. By kingdom, I mean that you have found the serenity that comes from accepting the things you can't change, the courage to change the things you can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm, the beautiful serenity prayer, yes. And, and those are three graces. You don't make that happen. Mm-hmm. You simply open to those as, as wonderful gifts that are coming to you that you're not walking alone in this valley of darkness, that there, there is an accompaniment. And that accompaniment, it, it can be God, it can be Buddha, it can be the universe, however you want to describe it. But the sense that I'm not in this alone and it doesn't all depend on what I do and the books I read and the work I do in therapy that there's something in this whole evolutionary structure of the universe that wants me to evolve, that wants me to grow into the full and fulfilled being that can make the best contribution to a world of justice, peace, and love. Wow, and now you're taking us here. in deep water, David. Deep water, because as we grow and evolve... Of course, we're better able to contribute to the world. Mm-hmm. And that is so important. And it may not be where you start out on the journey of love, everybody, but wouldn't that be a nice byproduct? You know, we have a, a business here called Love, Money, and Seva seminars. And when people say, why Seva? Because it's the final stage of maturity. It means selfless service. Mm. And you gave me a chance also to plug one of my favorite resources for those who want to do more of what David said a moment ago, which is appreciate and be grateful. Check out gratefulness.org. That is a fabulous site. Oh, yeah. You mean uh, Brother David? With Brother David, yes. Yes. That's uh, a great site. It's a wonderful site with all kinds of resources to help you stay attuned to this powerful muscle of gratefulness. All right. And anything else that you just know is the cherry on the Sunday before we let you go. I keep coming back to this realization that what we're really about is so much bigger than our story can describe that we are evolutionary beings who have a calling that's way bigger than anything we ever imagined. And if that could become interesting to us, it would make life so much different. If we were to say, oh, I'm here for some really special reason, and uh, I want to do everything I can to find out what it is. I want to really open myself to that. I can't drum it up. I can't, uh, I can't find out from a church what it's supposed to look like. It's something that has to come from the depths of myself. And the only way it'll come 
is when I've surrendered my ego. When I've let go of the arrogance, the entitlement, the controlling, everything that tries to make me the big shot. When I let go of that. All right, everybody. This is a high call, David. I'm going to give out your website. So for those who want to let go of arrogance, ego, entitlement, control, and being the big shot, you're going to want to go to triple-dub.daverico. That's D-A-V-R-I-C-H-O, Dave Rico. And go run, get to Amazon or wherever you have to go, get the book, How to Be an Adult in Relationships, Five Keys Mindful Loving. We are talking with our wonderful wise guest, David Rico. David, what a beautiful and insightful discussion. Thank you so very, very much. Well, thank you, Dr. Wade. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure having you as a guest. And everybody, stay with us for Good Love Radio. We have upcoming Phyllis Newhouse on the science of getting rich. It is going to surprise you what the science of getting rich is really all about. Jonathan Robinson on now. And do stay with me. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, all those wonderful social media things at Dr. Brenda Wade. And certainly if you're interested in more on how we can bring science, psychology, and spirituality together, we have books and resources at our website, which is drbrendawade.com. All right, everyone, thank you so much for being with us. With all my heart, I send you love and blessings. Till next time. Thank you to our great producer, LeBron Green, for our producer and moderator, Cliff Dunning. Blessings, everyone. Bye.